Well, Kelly Williams is, uh, thank you for that reading, Kelly. Um, she's one of our talented young adults here at Lake. And in fact, recently she, uh, uh, she did a one-woman play. Uh, and if you, if you know what that is, that's all by herself. And uh, it was just sold out. The whole place was packed. So thank you, Kelly, for doing that reading. Um, so I'm Pastor Walter Alexander, and it's just a tremendous privilege to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Um, I'm part of the adult ministries team, and every morning that I wake up, I thank God that I'm, I'm part of a wonderful team. I work with Pastor John Seacrest that you've heard here from the pulpit uh, before, and Pastor Bill Mead who led the prayer, and many others as well who are on, uh, on that team that I'm so grateful to be uh, part of. Um, I also, uh, you know, interact regularly with Pastor Greg. We talk about sermons and things like that. He kind of gives me a little tips, you know, training. But, you know, if you preach, you should do this. Don't do this. And, for example, uh, he says, you know, if you ever walk away from your notes and you don't remember what you're going to say next, just repeat the next thing, the last thing that you said. Just repeat the last thing that you said as you walk back to your notes. Um, that's not from him, okay? So it's, it's a joke. Don't, don't email him and say that I say that. Um, some of you, uh, uh, there might be a slide coming up, uh, might know my, my better half. She's really the better half of this equation. And, uh, and uh, uh, she's somewhere around here. I know um, she helps out in the Pathways Center, which is over there, that helps people to connect all the time. And she's just um, wonderful and gorgeous and everything all rolled into one. Um, so I hope that you take a chance to meet her and, and talk to her because you'll find that her conversation is probably a lot better than mine. Um, and some of you might know that uh, both of us come from the land of Singapore. It's a small nation. In fact, it's so small that when you look at the map, the red dot denoting where Singapore is on the map is usually bigger than the country itself. Um, in fact, Singapore is a nation half the size of L.A., it's 268 square miles, and it has 5 million people. So in perspective, the U.S. is 15,000 times the size of Singapore. And it's one of the most densely populated nations in the world. It's 18,000 people per square mile. But despite its small size, like chilies that come from that part of the world that I'm from, uh, it packs quite a punch. Um, it's a nation that has moved from third world status to first in the span of just one generation. It's an economic miracle. And, and today, Singapore is one of the most modern and efficient. And, and in fact, if you've been there, some of the, one of the cleanest cities in, in the world. It's got one of the best airports in the world, one of the best airlines. You may have flown Singapore Airlines. It's such a privilege to fly that if you can. And it's the only country in the world that hosts one of my favorite sports, Formula One racing at night. In fact, it's the only night race in the Formula One circuit. I've had the privilege of growing up in, in certainly one of the safest places to live in, you know. And uh, I can't talk about Singapore without talking about Singaporean food. Because one way to describe Singaporean food is just try to imagine being at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. With all the right, you know, it wouldn't be the marriage supper if it didn't have Singaporean food. You just have to try it if you go there. But like any country, Singapore has had its darker moments. You know, Singapore used to be a British colony, and in World War II, um, her defense uh, was the responsibility of the British. Uh, to the British, Singapore was considered an impregnable fortress. And one, one uh, quote that describes the complacency 
And the attitude of the British Army about defending Singapore comes from a young army officer who said this, Well, I do hope we are not getting too strong in Malaya, because if so, the Japanese may never attempt a landing. The Japanese weren't put off by his comments, and in fact, were probably spurred on to do that. And they landed in Malaya and advanced through the whole course of Malaya to, and captured Singapore in just 55 days. In fact, they did it mostly with stolen bicycles. Needless to say, the Japanese occupation in Singapore was a time of great horrors for the country. I will always remember stories that my grandfather would have told me of genocide that still chill me to the bone. And it was what happened during World War II that caused the government of Singapore, when it became independent, to say, we'll never again will we depend on a foreign power for our national security. And so, that is why today every male Singaporean uh, has to be mandatorily conscripted into the armed forces at the age of 18 to serve what we call uh, our national service. Singaporean men learn at an early age that they have to, if they want to preserve their freedoms, their land and their families, we have to stand up and fight for what we believe in. So as we approach the text today, we see that this is the same choice that the Israelites faced when the Amalekites attacked. So what do you want to call it? Amalekites or Amalekites? That's fine. <laughs> But this is the same choice that they faced when this foreign you know, raiding party came upon them. Stand up and fight for your way of life or be destroyed even long before you enter into the promised land. Now, this may seem like a no-brainer to most of us. Just fight. But let's try and put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites for a moment. Here was a people who had been enslaved for over 400 years. Certainly, every single man, woman, and child had only known of one condition and one plight. Oppression. God had drawn them out of Egypt and, 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 he had, uh, and he had taken them through the waters of the Red Sea miraculously. But as soon as that happened, they were plunged into the arid landscape of the wilderness. We've been going through this series with Pastor Greg um, about the great escape. And he has helped to teach us and explain to us that we have seen that the Israelites were filled with doubt. They doubted God's intentions. There was no food, no water, no meat. These were pressing and valid concerns for a group of hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And so they cried out to God. And they even complained against Him. And even worse, they began to doubt that He was ever with them. Yet each time that they cried out, God provided for them for their every need. But now, as they wandered through this wilderness, they are set upon by the Amalekites. Put yourself in their shoes again. You just faced hunger and thirst. Now you're being attacked by a vicious band of marauders. Can it get any worse than this? You know, the text paints a picture of what happens next. If you look in verses 8 to 10, the Amalekites attacked and Moses tells Joshua, you choose men, go out and fight the Amalekites. Meanwhile, Moses tells him as well that he's going to ascend a nearby mountain with Aaron and her, with the staff of God in his hands. Now understand something. This is the first time it is mentioned in Scripture that the Israelites had to fight. Remember that the Israelites had been slaves for over 400 years. What state do you think their fighting skills were in? These were people who had never seen war. Never. And now God was telling them to fight? 
<laughs> There's no time for boot camp or basic military training or learning how to throw your leather hand grenades. No, this, is, this was a time to just stand up and fight with whatever that you had. On the other hand, the Amalekites, this was something that they did as a way of life. Raiding parties. You know, the scriptures tell us in the book of Judges that the Amalekites specialized in swift surprise attacks. And they had mastered the use of the camel in these attacks. Now, a camel may neither seem like a particularly swift or a dangerous uh, animal, but they smell really bad, and that alone gives the creature an advantage in subduing the enemy. Did you know that the camel's uh, form of self-defense is spitting? Yeah, it's apparently like a green, bile-ish. That's just not right. But you see, to the Israelites who had never seen war before, even a camel being used in battle would have struck fear into their hearts. So what was God thinking by allowing his people to go through this dangerous and life-threatening situation? And what could God be saying to us through this passage that we can learn as lessons through them? I have three points that I think that we can learn as lessons from this passage. And the first one is, in order to get to the promised land, you're going to have to fight. You see, the Israelites had never really fought anyone before. They didn't even have to fight the Egyptians, right? And so when Pharaoh changed his mind and sent his army after them, God still protected them and parted the Red Sea for them to walk through. But he drowned the Egyptian pursuers. The Israelites didn't even have to lift a finger to fight them. But here we see the Amalekites attacking. And God did not protect them from these attacks. In fact, the Amalekite attack we see here is also described in the parallel passage And we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 18. You can read it here, and it says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Notice that through the trials and the temptations that the Israelites had been going through in the wilderness, they became weary and worn out. The hunger and thirst and the experience of being so deep in this desert wilderness was demoralizing for them. And so the Amalekites seized upon this opportunity to launch a sneak attack. They attacked the back, the rear of the column, taking out all those who were lagging behind. In other words, those who were weak, those who couldn't keep up, maybe women and children and those of the older generation. And then the passage adds that they had no fear of God. Do you wonder why God allowed such an attack to happen? What was he thinking? And why didn't he protect them the way that he did with the Egyptians? You know, in our lives, we're going to face situations where we will have to stand up and fight. Sometimes the severity of a situation gives us motivation to fight. The life of a believer is full of battles. Nobody told us this before we got saved, right? Scriptures tell us, though, that trials and temptations are part of the everyday, ordinary life of a believer. So we shouldn't be caught off guard or surprised when we go through trials and temptations. Look at this verse. In the First Peter chapter 4, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, 
so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Consider this next passage in James chapter 1, where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Hmm. That's interesting. Because I wonder how all of us would have reacted if the person who brought us across the line of faith and got us saved told us that the moment that God saves us, you're going to have to go through trials. You're going to have to go through hardship. Out of Egypt into the wilderness. Even today, when we go through trials and we have a relationship with Christ, we say things like, nobody ever told me it was going to be this hard. See, just like the Israelites before we were saved, we did, really didn't have anything to fight for. We just went with the flow. Whatever the world told us, whatever people told us, that was what we believed in. But today, when we go through trials and temptations, we have to be ready to fight. Because we are being tested whether or not we truly trust in God. And there are reasons why God brings us into suffering. It helps us become more like Christ. James 1.4 says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wow. Do you want to be mature and not lacking in anything? Well, the scripture says that you have to go through trials of many kinds just to have that. And later on in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. To those who love him. Look at what we receive when we persevere through trials. It's the crown of life. Do you want that? Well, then you have to persevere through trials. In other words, to get to the promised land, our promised land, you're going to have to fight against these things. But who are we fighting? We've talked a lot about this force that is trying to to come in and, and fight against us. We're fighting the Amalekites. And here's the second thing that I propose that the Israelites learned from this battle. They learned that the Amalekites are closer than we think. We already discussed how the Amalekites were probably superior to the Israelites in terms of military power. right? And notice how when Moses puts down his hands, the battle goes south. Which can only mean that without God's intervention, the Israelites did not stand a chance against the Amalekites. But you probably also notice that the main point of the entire passage is about how God declares that he will blot out, blot out the entire Amalekite race and that he will be at war with them from generation to generation. Now, wait a second. It's it's a little bit harsh, don't you think, God? For him to condemn an entire race for just one attack on the Israelites? Now, far be it for me to defend God. I mean, I think that he does a pretty good job of doing that on his own. But I think that it would be profitable for us to look at who the Amalekites were and because we would be able to understand then why God wanted to do this to them. And here it is. First, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. Okay, follow me so far. Now Esau, as the story goes, was a fleshly man who sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge or pottage or stew, whatever your translation reads. 
But whatever it reads, that must have been one amazing bowl of stew. Because, and it was probably a Singaporean stew because of what I just talked about earlier. But one does not generally give up one's birthright so easily. But that was the kind of man that Esau was. Jacob, I'm so hungry. Give me your birthright. Okay, okay, just, just, I'll give it to you. Just give me the food. And as the story goes, Jacob deceives Esau and his father. And ever since then, Esau has, been, has had animosity towards the Israelites. This animosity and indeed his character traits must have been passed down to his descendants. Because when the Amalekites saw the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, they wasted no time in attacking the weak and the tired Israelites. Second thing is that when you look at the preponderance of Scripture, you're going to understand why God reacted in this way. Are you ready? We're going to go through this pretty quickly. So buckle up, Grandma, and here we go. The second thing is this. The Amalekites throughout Scripture turn out to be the bane of Israel's existence. A year, one year after this attack in, uh, in Exodus, in Numbers 14, after the Israelites listened and believed the spies' bad report. Remember, the spies came back with a bad report. And they still wanted to go into the, uh, the, into the promised land anyway, but God was not with them. Guess who? The Amalekites were ready at hand to beat them down and defeat them so that they could not enter the land. In the time of the book of Judges, there were the Amalekites again. They allied themselves with enemies of Israel who were oppressing them. And then during the reign of King Saul, God commanded Saul to slay all the Amalekites, but in disobedience, he left this king, the king of the Amalekites. His name was Agag. He left him alive. It is really uncanny that in Saul's final moments, after he had been fatally wounded in battle by the Philistines, standing nearby him was an Amalekite, whom he asked to kill him before the Philistines could get to him. To top off, to be the, the, the cherry on top of this Amalekite cake, it's the fact that the book of Esther says that Haman was an Agagite, which is probably an Amalekite. And we all know that his agenda was nothing less than the total extermination of the Jews. But you see, in Scripture, it tells us that in spite of this, God's promises to Abraham was to preserve Israel because it was through Israel that the light of the world would come, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There was no plan B for God. And so, God must have seen the wickedness that was in the hearts of the Amalekites already at this point in Exodus and vowed to remove them before they caused too much damage. So God's response to those that have made up their minds to destroy God's people is to destroy them. Now, this does not take away from the fact, though, that God is long-suffering and He's loving and full of compassion but there is a certain point in which time God is so provoked by sin that he has to bring judgment. There is a certain tipping point where if God does not judge, he would not be a just God. And yet we see that right up to that point, though, God is so merciful and full of grace and mercy and compassion that if any of us turn to him and ask him for forgiveness... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's waiting for us to do that at every point in time. But the Amalekites. Now you might be wondering, who are these people to us? I got a little bit of bad news for you today. 
Because the Amalekites are basically in you and in me. You see, just as the Amalekites were descendants of a fleshly carnal man, Esau, so they are also symbols of our own fallen and sinful nature. You know, when you come to Christ, you don't get rid of your sinful nature the moment that you get saved. When you come to Christ, we are cleansed from our sins and we become new creations in Him. But the fact is that we are still fallen, nature, fallen creatures with the propensity to sin again and again and again. And if we do not deal, and this is what I call the Amalekite within us. Because if we do not deal with this sinful nature, it has a propensity to destroy us or bring us back to Egypt. And it is this sinful nature that God wants us to destroy. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 17, 18 and 19. And it says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then in verses 21 and 24 it says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Can you hear the frustration in Paul's voice when he talks about this? Have you experienced this before? You know that you're redeemed and you have a relationship with Christ, but for some reason you find yourself struggling with the sins of the past and somehow it's been so hard that you've been unable to break free. Or perhaps you've been struggling with doing God's will in an area that you know He's been confronting you about and you've been unwilling to change. I know how hard it is to struggle with God. Some of you who've met me, you might have heard my story that I practice law as an attorney in Singapore. And yet, even before I went into law school, the Lord had spoken to me and had told me that He had a plan for my life in full-time ministry. See, God was calling me in one direction, but my flesh wanted to take me in another. I was saying to God, wait, 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 hang on, God. I would really prefer uh, to be here. It's really nice and comfortable here. Don't call me away. Well, the thing is that I was living in a comfort zone. And, you know, the thing about comfort zones is that they're really not that comfortable. They're a zone that we live in between failure and success. We claim it's comfortable, but all it really is is familiar. We've got to get to the place where our comfort zone is the will of God, no matter how uncertain and on the edge that might be. I can tell you, friends, that I've never regretted leaving the legal profession to follow the will of God. I don't think about things like how much money I could have been making or how much fun that I could be having as a lawyer. There, of course, have been challenges that my wife and I have had to face that have tested our faith, and it has not been easy. But God has been so faithful to us every step of the way. And let me tell you that being in His will, in His will, is the most joyous place that a child of God can be. So the Amalekite is in us. He's closer than we think. And we've been charged to destroy him. But how can you do that when it seems so hard? 
And that brings me to the third lesson that we can learn, which is, if you want to win the battle, surrender to God. You see, just as Moses lifted up his hands to God in the heat of the battle, we need to lift our hands to him in total surrender and dependence upon him. Now, I know that this sounds like an easy thing to do, and it really is harder than it sounds. Because, you see, the people of Israel, if you've noticed in the past few weeks, we've been learning that they struggled with this issue. You've heard it said before, you can get the people out of Egypt, but it's hard to get the Egypt out of people. You know, up to the point of their deliverance, the Israelites actually depended on Egypt for their well-being. Now, I know that they were the oppressors and the Egyptians were their slaves. But, you see, when they were in Egypt, they didn't have to worry about things like food, water, shelter, or war. Things that they had to deal with in the wilderness. And even though the Egyptians were the oppressors, the Israelites began to depend on them and even become comfortable doing that. They began to depend on the oppression that they bring. Now, let me, let me talk about this a little bit more. Did you know that there's a certain predictability, a certain comfort, a certain familiarity with the way that bondage and oppression operates? So when deliverance comes, we are actually so used to the oppressiveness that, there is, that we actually long to go back to it again. There's actually a clinical condition to describe this, and it's called post-incarceration syndrome, or they call it PICS for short. And there is a movie that talks about this process of being incarcerated for a long time and then being released into society. And the word that they use in that movie is the word institutionalized. The movie that I'm talking about is The Shawshank Redemption. You might have remembered that it came out quite a few years ago. And although it has many themes in it which are not actually the themes that I agree with, but its script deals with things that sometimes we deal with just about every day. Morgan Freeman, who plays, who plays a character whose name is Red, he says this about institutionalization. He says, I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, it gets so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. You know, in the movie, there is an especially poignant scene of institutionalization having horrible consequences and playing out. There's a character, his name is Brooks, and he's played masterfully by the actor James Whitmore, the late actor James Whitmore. And he's released after 50 years of being incarcerated. He's given a job bagging groceries in the grocery store. But it's hard work for an old man in his 80s, and his hands hurt most of the time. He finds it hard to sleep at night, and he has no one on the outside who cares for him or knows or cares to know him. Old, tired, and alone, he writes a letter back to his friends in prison saying this, I don't like it here. I'm tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss, not for an old crook like me. And so he carves a phrase on a beam in his apartment, Brooks was here, and then he hangs himself. You see, for some of us, friends, we've been in slavery for so long, we don't know 
how to live as free men. For others of us, perhaps we've not really tasted of severe bondage or addictions before, but we've tasted enough to feel the effects of institutionalization. You see, one of the clinical symptoms of institutionalization is this thing called hypervigilance. What hypervigilance is, is that we're so used to living in a particular way that we have an inherent distrust of anyone who tells us otherwise, even those who are trying to help us like God. Friends, we are all damaged goods. And God is trying to rehabilitate us. But we have to acknowledge the fact that we cannot do this on our own. And we have to learn to trust Him and submit to Him in the process. In fact, He's trying to show us that without Him, we cannot win this battle against our flesh. And there is only one way to win this battle. And that is to do what Moses did. And completely surrender to God. Now, friends, this is countercultural because the world celebrates independence, right? We celebrate this every day, every year on the 4th of July. In the example of Singapore that I gave you in the beginning of this message, it said Singapore never again wants to depend on a foreign power for its defense. It wants to be independent. But you know what the truth is? It's that even the most independent person is still dependent on someone himself. But the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Submit to him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. See, God wants us to depend on him. How ironic it is when we read that the Lord asked Moses not to use the rod to smite the Amalekites, just as he did the Egyptians, but rather to lift the rod high as an instrument that is surrendered to Him. And in so surrendering to God, when you surrender to God, God sees you lifting up His banner, His colors, and that invites His grace like nothing on earth. Now friends, I'm well aware of the tough situations that many of us here in our congregation are facing with cancer, with bad reports from doctors, with financial difficulties and so on. I'm well aware that many of us are struggling with these things. And it seems like God is not answering your prayers or that He's telling you to wait or some kind of you know, super spiritual thing that perhaps pastors may have told you. But let me tell you something. God may not come to your aid and give you the victory in the way that you want Him to or in the timing that you want Him to, but He will come to your aid. If you persevere in obedience... I don't know how the victory will come, but it will come. Because let me tell you, friends, even if the worst happens, even in death, we are victorious because we get to be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The wonderful part about this passage in Exodus 17 is that God gives us one big um, key in fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, in fighting against the Amalekites. And I want to tell you today that the answer is as close as the person who is sitting right beside you. He gives us each other. 
just as Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses to help him hold up his hands to God, we need one another to help each of us fully surrender to God, especially during times when we are weak and we are weary. I can't tell you how important it is to be part of a smaller group of believers, friends, because that is where you will get to form meaningful relationships that will support you and help you focus on the Lord. I can't tell you the countless people who have benefited in just immeasurable ways from being part of a small group. I spoke with one of our lake parents recently, and she said something that completely blew me away. This is what she said. She said that because of her small group, Her children now know who they can turn to and confide in when their parents are not around. It's truly a privilege to be part of a group that cares for you and prays for you and supports you in this way. And friends, going to services alone is not going to cut it. If you want to become a disciple of Christ, you need to be in a small group because discipleship is life on life and doing life together. Lifting each other up. Carrying one another's burdens. When life gets you down and it's hard to believe that God is in control, others can come around you to lift your hands to believe in Him again. To tell you that today may be Friday, but Sunday is coming. To tell you that weeping may last for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. One of the things that the passage also talks to us about is that how Moses built an altar. And he called it, the Lord is my banner, or the Lord is my victory. You know, when somebody builds an altar in the scripture, it's about telling, it's telling us that there is a truth at that point of time that the Lord reveals about his character and about himself. And in this case, he's revealing to us that he is our victory and our banner. And in the ancient times, when people, when the descendants of that person who built the altar would come by that way, they would see the altar and remember here, what happened here, and how God revealed himself to his people. In the same way, in the tough times, the trials and the battles, do not forget, hold on to this truth that the Lord is your banner and that he will fight your battles for you. I had the privilege of being in a leadership uh, summit recently and had the privilege of listening to the former U.S. Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. And uh, let me tell you, she is a wonderful follower of Christ, and she's not afraid to say it. That was a quote that I came away from, from what she said that I think really applies to us here. She said that history teaches us that sometimes things that seem impossible at the time, in retrospect, seem inevitable. It takes people who reject the impossible to pursue what they believe ultimately to be inevitable. Friends, I don't know what odds are being stacked against you right now. But I know this. If you believe in God, believe in what is inevitable. We just got done with the Olympic season. And let me ask you, if Olympic athletes, before they became Olympic athletes, looked at the odds of them getting into the Olympics and winning a medal, do you think that they would be super encouraged? The fact is, it's their training. Though it is hard and exceedingly painful at times, it puts them in a position to do what others might believe is impossible and make those things inevitable. Paul talks about this all the time in the Scriptures. 
that we are to run our race. He uses sports analogy all the time. Run our race in a way that we should win and make the impossible inevitable. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, you heard Pastor Gray say this all the time, it made no sense to his disciples, especially when they were with him just a few days earlier. They did not understand what he was saying. And on Friday, it looked impossible. But on Sunday morning, the impossible became the inevitable. See, history plays little tricks on us. When we look back at things that actually came to pass, we say, oh yeah, that, 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 that was going to happen. But when you are going through tough times, that doesn't always seem like it's going to be that way. And that's why we have to look to the hope that the Lord has given to us. And so, the God of heaven sees the beginning from the end. And when He brings you through suffering and hardship, it will only be for a moment And it is always for a purpose. We may not be able to see His purpose while we're going through it, but He knows it, and we should trust in Him. So back to what Paul was saying earlier on in this passage. He says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he ends with, Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, friends, We need to live not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, in the movie Shawshank Redemption, uh, the main character of the movie, his name is Andy. And he escapes from prison, and his best friend, Red Morgan Freeman, uh, manages to get out of prison as well. He's released. And when Morgan Freeman, he discovers a letter from Andy, who escaped from prison. And this is what it says. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. If the world can have hope in desperate situations, we have a better covenant based on better promises because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And so be like David. When we go through tough times, Talk to yourself. He did that all the time. He said, why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. So friends, let's rally together. Let's give this fight all that we've got. And let's surrender to God and let Him use us in whatever way that he wants all power and glory and wisdom and thanks be to our god through our lord jesus christ forever and ever amen amen